Thanks, Henry, and good evening, everybody, whether you're watching at home or whether you're here today. Wonderful to see you all. I want you to ask yourself this question. What do you want your life to say to the people, to the world around you? I think it's actually an interesting question. Have you ever asked yourself that? What do I want my life to speak out? Uh, Maybe you want your life to speak of power and say to the world, don't mess with me, I'm the man, or I am woman, hear me roar, or I'm in charge, or something like that. Maybe you'd like your life to speak of achievement and say to the world, I am significant, I am successful, I work hard, I'm smart, I know what I'm doing, something like that. Maybe you would like to speak your life to speak of your freedom and say to the world, I do my own thing, I live life large, or been there, done that, tried it. Maybe actually you want your life to speak about who you are relationally and say to the world, I'm a good man, I'm a good woman, I'm a good dad, I'm a good mum, or I care about people, or I helped. Now, your answer to that question is going to be tied closely, isn't it, to your self-identity, what you value, and it'll also speak a little probably about your insecurities as well. And it's also worth reflecting upon not just what you want your life to say, but what it actually is saying to the people who are around you. And do the two things match, what you want your life to say to the world and what it does say to the world. How does being a Christian impact what we want our lives to say? Well, if you consider the second last sentence of last week's passage, it says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so surely what that suggests is that our lives need to say, if we're Christians, need to say very clearly I belong to an excellent God. And whatever else our lives might say apart from that, they must not drown out that resounding word. And that is what today's passage is about. And we're actually going to go all the way to chapter 3, verse 7. But it begins with verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. So make sure you've got your Bibles open and let me read that to you. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. And so, as people who belong to God, but who are also therefore aliens and strangers here, we've got two clear and simple duties that have been laid out for us. The first one's in verse 11, and that is that we're steer clear of sin. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Now, the word picture there is hold away from you your sinful desires. In other words, don't hold them close as if they're your friends or have them readily at hand as if they're your acquaintances. We need to recognise our sinful desires as enemy soldiers that are trying to destroy your soul. Keep them away from you. 
These were the same desires, you remember, that were leading us to destruction until we received the mercy of God. They're not our friends. We need to remember that. And so duty number one for the Christian is regard sin and recognise it and those desires as being your enemy. Duty number two is in verse 12. So as aliens and strangers, as God's chosen people, get on with the job of declaring His excellencies for the honour of God and for the sake of the people around you. Live a life that's so undeniably good that it actually causes the non-believing world around you to question their false assumptions about you and ultimately, hopefully, lead them to acknowledge and glorify God when He comes to judge the living and the dead. So, put plainly, duty number two is represent. Live missionally for the sake of the lost and for the sake of God's glory. And so we've got this wonderful twofold call, and it's very simple, isn't it? A twofold call for the Christian. Be vigilant over your new birth as you live away from home, and then represent the goodness of God in the eyes of the world. Make your life speak volumes about the one who has called you. It's not actually that complicated. Now, this theme is going to be developed through the book. But the first place Peter goes is to the way we live this out in authority relationships. First of all, at a high level and then at a far closer, up close sort of level. And so first, as people belonging to our heavenly king, how are we to act before our earthly kings? So let's have a look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now, the word human authority there, it refers to institutions or social structures that have been created by people. But look at the qualifier that Peter attaches to this. Every. The emperor, yes, but all of those who exercise authority under him that he's delegated authority to. We are to submit ourselves to them. That means we are to willingly recognise and obey their authority. But notice what Peter is stressing. These are there to punish wrongdoing, literally evildoers, and to commend good doers. Now remember, what are we meant to be doing as we live as aliens and strangers? Those two things have nothing to do with sinful desires and live such good lives among the nations that they might praise God. Well, look what Peter says is the reason that we submit to every human authority. Verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You know, there are a number of other parts in the New Testament that talk about what's these called these household codes and, and authority. And, and, um, and we're told that most places that we submit to authorities because what we do is we recognise that God is the ultimate authority who has placed them there. But that's not Peter's focus in, he, in this chapter. See, Peter's focus is on our witness. Did you see that? It's about what our lives say to the world around us. So by submitting to the authorities whose job it is to give earthly verdicts on good and evil, Christians are to honour them. And Christians are to do good 
so that those in authority in the world are going to actually say, yes, that is good, that they're going to acknowledge this good and in so doing testify to the lie of the ignorant fools who deny God and accuse you of doing wrong, right? And so our message to the world is not, you're not the boss of me because I've got a higher boss and so I'm going to rub your face in it in defiance. Like, you know, those um, you saw on the news, those terrorists who, when arrested, would refuse to stand in court. They would say, no, we, we sub, um, submit only to Allah, and so we have no respect for you and your judges and your laws. We're not like that. And we're not saboteurs working against earthly authorities. We're not anarchists rebelling against a human rule that we don't recognise. But we are to show that God is good by being good and showing ourselves to be people of honour and respect in every context. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. Now, before we move on, let's have a little bit of a think about this and how it might apply to us now. Now, it's important we realise that Christians must live in a way that is above reproach. For our own sake, because good is actually good, but also so that those who slam Christians as hypocrites and as dangerous to society and as being what's wrong with the world lose all of their credibility. The world that hears these accusations is going to match those accusations up against what they see and what they hear about the Christians that they know. They're going to open their eyes and they're going to weigh up that slander and go, is it slander or is it truth? And certainly those that have actually run society, they know who causes them problems and who doesn't. And so for Christians, we have seen this at work, haven't we? And if you've, if you've been paying attention to the news, we've seen it positively and negatively. We've certainly seen it negatively, haven't we, with the impact of, on our witness, on the Christian witness of child abuse scandals and the protection of abusers. You know, and, 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 the, and the greedy, uh, tax-dodging televangelists that, 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 and the way that taints our reputation and blunts our message. You've seen that. But you can also see it positively as well, and I hope you see this. You see, without Christians and Christian volunteers, so many critical services to society just wouldn't happen. There are many who would love churches to be taxed into oblivion, who would want churches shut out of, of public life, and those voices can be very loud. But at the moment, one of the things that actually protects our witness and presence in the public sphere is that so much of the good that Christians do gets noticed by those in government. And every year, not just them that notice, the people that are the beneficiaries of it notice it. And guess what? Every year, countless people become Christians because of the work that Christians do and the great witness that they give. But let's not just think about that larger scale, let's think more about ourselves and our own attitudes and behaviours towards authority. How do you go? How easy do you find it to submit to authorities? 
thinking about complying and cooperating with local councils and their red tape when you're improving your house or parking your car or using your recycle bin and thinking about what you're putting in it. How are you like at that? How are you like at acting with integrity with your tax returns, not claiming things that you can't claim? How are you at supporting and praying for our local MPs? What about this one? One of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing here and why we're doing with our mini-ECs and everything, complying with COVID regulations and recommendations. Because the way we as churches and Christians do this, believe me, it will impact our witness. And when we don't do it, it will get in the papers and the churches will be blamed as the problem. And yet when we show ourselves to be the people who say, if that's what you would like us to do, and if that's what's good for society, we will do it. Because we honour you. Because you know what? The world's watching. And the world is listening. The will of our God is that we honour and respect human institutions and that we live lives of such integrity that we testify to the lies of those who slander him and us and by our integrity we testify to the goodness of our God. Well, Peter now moves from the high level to another key area of showing proper honour to everyone. He brings us to the place where our example perhaps is the most difficult to hide. And perhaps it's the most powerful to give in the home. First of all, to servants. Have a look there in verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, the word for slave that's being used here is not the normal generic word for slave, but specifically the word that refers to slaves who serve in their master's house. Right, the word for home is actually in this word. These are servants who are, in other words, up close with their masters, not remote from them. Now, Peter calls them to submit to their master's authority. Now, there's nothing radical there. But it's what he says next, though, that gives this verse profound impact. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Submit to your masters, Peter says, not just those whose behaviour is easy to honour, but even to those who are very hard to respect. Now, why? Well, it's in verses 19 and 20. Now, I know it can get tiresome when a preacher says, but the Greek says, dot, 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 dot. But I'm sorry, <laughs> because this is one of those occasions where the NIV, can I say, has made a surprising translation decision that unfortunately, I think, disguises a really important word that Peter uses here. And I'm confident that when I mention it, you'll go, oh, okay, I see why you mentioned that. All right? So if you're having a look there, verse 19 and 20, for it is commendable, is literally, for this is grace. So let me give you another word-for-word translation of those verses. For this is grace. If, because of consciousness of God, someone endures grief, suffering unjustly, for what kind of honour is there if one sins and endures a beating? But if, doing good, one endures suffering, this is grace before God. 
Submit even to crooked masters because this is grace. Now, for a Christian, you see what I'm talking about? The word grace should jump out at us when we read it, shouldn't it? Undeserved kindness. That's what grace is. Doing good towards someone who hasn't earned your good treatment of them. Now, why would God be interested in his people showing grace to the undeserving, even those at whose hands they're suffering unjustly? Who do we know that submitted to crooked authorities and endured pain and grief because he was conscious of his heavenly father? Can you think of anyone? Well, Peter can. Look at verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, to this you were called is a powerful message. Because you know, called has been used twice already in 1 Peter. And both times it was about drawing us towards God, calling us towards God and who he's like. Um, So first... Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Remember that one? And then second, that you might declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. So we're called to his holiness. We're called to his godliness. And now we're called to mirror his graciousness. And he's As he has done through the letter so far, Peter goes to the scriptures in verses 22 to 25. See, to these servants, Peter reminds them that their king is also a servant and his service was also up close and personal and everyday. And he quotes and alludes to that passage that we read earlier from Isaiah 53, the pattern that Christ fulfilled of the suffering Messiah. Jesus suffered innocently. Jesus faced insults without retaliating. He he bore threats without returning the barbs. Jesus entrusted himself to God and he bore all of this. And why? To save the very servants that Peter is writing to, as well as us. It was him graciously dealing with us and our sin by actually dying for us while we were crooked. That is unjust suffering, but it's also our salvation. See, the good shepherd who has been so gracious to them is now the one who is their overseer. You get that play on words? Their servants, their overseer is now Jesus, the good shepherd. And so when they show the same integrity and grace towards the, the undeserving bosses that they've got, as their saviour did to them, they are testifying to Christ with a crystal clarity that speaks volumes. Now, let's think about how this might help us in our own circumstances. Now, while there's something to be said, I think, about for how we conduct ourselves generally in our workplaces and obey its rules and so on, I think a closer connection to this setting might not be so much how we relate with the organisation in general or at a higher level, superiors, those sorts of things, but especially how we relate with those that we work with up close, our immediate supervisors, our immediate bosses, the ones that we relate with on a daily basis. And if you're a student, you go, I don't have a job. And I think this also applies to how you relate with those who are your teachers or your lecturers 
or your tutors. Now, if that boss is kind and generous and gracious, praise God for that. I'm not saying it just lightly. Seriously, praise God for that because not everyone has that blessing and you'll know that from conversations you have with people. But this passage also reminds us, you know, don't take that kindness for granted. And even more importantly, don't take advantage of that. Submit to their authority all the more willingly because they're kind, especially if they're not a believer. In the end, you want them to know Christ. And if your example is going to help that to happen, praise God for it, because you're living out your calling. But many of us know what it's like to have bosses that are very hard to work with. Some of you have got bosses who are all about themselves, who lord it over the office, who take credit for other people's work, who criticise anything you do wrong but never praise what you do right, who play people in the office off against each other, who withhold bonuses, who bully, who mock. What do you do if that's the world you're in? A quick jump to the side, if that's the world you're in because that's the kind of boss you are and you call yourself a Christian, you might want to have a think about that. There's probably some serious repenting you need to do and rethink the way you relate to those who are under your authority. But, but what about, because Peter's speaking to those who are under their authority, what about us? Um, and if that's your situation, well, you're not a slave, you need to remember that. You can leave your job you can request transfers and that may be the best course of action. But what if you can't? Or what if that's quite a long way off? Well, first, as you follow the example of your servant king, the first thing I want to say is do entrust yourself to the one that judges justly. You know, a toxic workplace is a very, very hard place to be. And so I think it's so important to hold on to that truth that God sees and that God knows and that God will hold them to account and that God will vindicate you for living with integrity and enduring all of that. And you know what? Maybe he might vindicate you soon. He may call them to account soon because you know what? The wickedness of the wicked is often exposed in this life and you may just have to endure a season of this, right? So entrust yourself to the God who judges justly. But you know what? It may not happen right now. It may not actually happen in this life. But you can know that God will vindicate you and he will do what is just. No one gets away with anything. God will do what is right. In the meantime, your duty is to abstain from sinful desires and to conduct yourself in a way that points to Jesus, right? So your example is going to be as much in, as in what you don't do as in what you do. And so what's the temptation, what's the sinful desire that you need to hold away from yourself in these circumstances? Well, it might be to gossip to your fellow workers about your boss. It might be to undermine them at any opportunity. It might be to sabotage them so that deliberately do work wrongly so that they will get in trouble from their superiors. To do whatever little things you might do around the place that, you know, and little narky little things that will make their job unpleasant so that they know what it's like. But you know what Christ's example was? It was not to respond to evil with evil. 
Make sure, in other words, that you've got someone that you can trust because you don't want to do that. You need to make sure you've got someone who can trust, maybe Christian peers and friends, maybe your growth group, who you can actually go to and share your struggles because it's not necessarily the thing to do with your workmates and say, doesn't our boss suck? But tell your growth group that your boss sucks and that you're struggling with it. And sometimes you need to vent your frustrations, vent it it there, not at work. And then entrust yourself to them and and get their advice who can support you and give you advice and who can pray for you. But the second thing is, think and pray about these things. How can I show grace here? How can I be, in this context, living such a good life among them, even as I suffer and even as I suffer at their hands, so that either my boss themselves or those who I work with, because their eyes will be open, so that they will notice the difference and want to know why I'm like this. What is this strength that you have that enables you to do this and act this way, given the way you're treated? So do your job. Do it well. Do it consistently. Be the worker that they don't have to struggle with. Strive to honour their requests, even the unreasonable ones not the unlawful ones. You know that God sees. You know that that's what God wants you to do and he approves of it. And so take heart in that because you're walking in the footsteps of your Saviour and that's what your God delights to see. But pray that they will start to notice. Pray for a softening of their heart. Pray that your good behaviour might even shame them into change, better still, to repentance and faith. And so we come to another close-up, authority relationship. And it's a word for Christian wives. Now, in its original setting, there would be little that was controversial about what Peter has to say here, but we're not in that original setting, are we? And so the task is going to be for us as we listen to words that can be a bit of a red rag to a bull in our society, that we listen carefully to what Peter is saying and not reactively to what Peter is saying. So let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. In the same way, means in the same, just like I've been saying to the Christian servants, is what Peter is saying. Just as they did... Wives are delivered an alien in a world that they don't fit in, resisting sinful desires, acting graciously, living in such a way and such a good life that it might lead to God being glorified. That's Peter's theme for this entire section. And you can see that there. Submit to your own husbands. Why? So that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without a word by the behaviour of their wives. So he's saying, live missionally in your own home. Now, verse 2, when they see, is a word that's not talking about a momentary observation or a glance. It's a word that implies continuity and intent. In other words, when they constantly see or when they always see. Again, this is up-close stuff. And, and what are they to continually witness? 
the reverent purity of your lives. It doesn't get switched on and off at a whim, but that is continual and true to who you are. Integrity of behaviour done mindful of the God that you now worship. Now, what we might picture in this setting is is a non-Christian Greek husband who is wondering what this new religion is that his wife has taken on board. And there might be a suspicion, a contempt even, maybe an embarrassment that their wife has taken up with this new Christianity business because she's not following the gods that your people have traditionally worshipped. But then he opens his eyes and he just sees what this new faith is doing with his wife. That she's a joy to live with. That she's supportive, even though you don't believe the same thing. And that she's honouring of you and noble and pure and quite different to a lot of what else you're seeing around with other people's houses. You see, it's very hard to argue against that. Whatever this Christianity is, the fruit of it in your wife's life is just so impressive. Her life speaks volumes. See, real beauty is more than skin deep. And most people with any wisdom know that. See, look at verses 3 and 4. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Real beauty is not in the external person, but it is of the inner, or literally the hidden self, which notice, like the inheritance that's being kept for us, and unlike gold and jewellery and clothes and hair, as we've already heard about in chapter 1, it is unfading. It is of great worth, and though it is hidden and internal, it is in full view of God whose eyes are the ones that really, really matter. And what characteristic does Peter draw special attention to here? A gentle and quiet spirit. Now, of course, our society seems to despise these things. Christians never should. I mean, gentleness, that's a fruit of the spirit. All Christians should be striving to exhibit gentleness. Gentleness is that kind of, if you want to think about definition of it, it's that kind of powerful inner strength. And can I say it is? It is an inner strength that enables you to act with tenderness and with gracious restraint. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, it's spoken of as a virtue worthy of our calling. And that's talking about everybody's calling as a Christian. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it's a character that overseers of God's people, they have to exhibit gentleness. But perhaps most powerfully, it is something characteristic of Jesus. Look at verse 11, uh, 28 of Matthew 11. Jesus says, Come to me... All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, put yourself as being like Jesus in that and being that kind of person. I mean, that is just so, so praiseworthy. And what about a quiet spirit? Well, it's not speaking about silence. 
It's a quiet and peaceful existence, attitude, disposition. It's, it's a security, actually. And again, this is a powerful inner strength, isn't it? It's enviable, even. A, a disposition that's not shaken by the troubles of this world, that doesn't have to yell at it or rage against it or roar in defiance all the time, but that is quietly faithful and hopeful and confident in the promises of God. It doesn't have to flaunt itself. Now, you can see how that might be of great value if you're trying to represent Christ to your unbelieving husband and win him over, if necessary, without a word. See, that kind of gracious intent, that gracious restraint, keeping you cool, being the peacemaker, deflecting tempers, quietly talking reason... Now that is beautiful and it is a powerful witness to Jesus. And the example that Peter uses from Scripture for this one is is the holy women of the past, such as Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now there's debate here about what Peter is referring to here, but most likely it's actually Sarah's whole of life, in a sense, willingness to follow Abraham and to support him as he trusted the promises of God, as he uprooted their family and travelled to a land he'd never seen before in answer to the call of God. And Sarah was there every step of the way. Instead of going, Abraham, you're crazy, I'm not doing anything, you're not taking the kids yet. Um, She obeyed him and went with him as he followed the call of God. And so just as Abraham was a man of faith, so Sarah showed herself to be a woman of faith. And character and a character when she submitted to his decision to follow the call of God. But that last line in verse 6 is a reminder that Peter knows many of the women he's addressing were very vulnerable. What would standing up for Christ mean in their marriage, especially in an ancient Greek culture where women had so few rights and the husband could do nearly as he pleased? You could easily give in to fear. And so shrink back from your faith, from what distinguishes you, and deny Christ as the safer option. But Peter says, no, follow Sarah's example. Do what is good and faithful. And what does this mean for us now? Well, it certainly does not mean that women need to stay in a place where they are vulnerable to harm or danger. And this needs to be said very, very clearly. If that is your situation... If that is your situation, then do what you can to get yourself and if there's any children, somewhere safe. Call the very appropriately described phone number 1-800-RESPECT, 1-800-RESPECT and follow their advice. But the positive message is honour your husband if you're married, help him lead your family. Live with integrity and by your virtue prompt him to consider where this comes from and have a fresh look at Jesus. Now, interestingly, unlike normal household codes, there's no word for the masters in the slaves bit. Peter's emphasis here is on how to respond to Christianly to those in authority. But notice that there is one for husbands. It's almost as if His mention of fear in verse 6, and it's actually a strong word for fear, more like terror, has prompted him to make a very pointed call to husbands, whose duty is also to abstain from their sinful desires and do what is good. Husbands, verse 7, in the same way, 
just like the servants, just like your wives, live such a way to give proper respect to everyone. And his word is pretty straight. Don't be a jerk. Don't abuse your authority and your power. Be considerate as you live with your wives, he says, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Be thoughtful. Treat your wives with honour. Recognise that they're not as physically, physically strong as you, and it is definitely that, that. It's literally as the weaker vessel. It's talking about the physicality. So you know, don't ever abuse your strength. In other words, men are also to be, guess what? Gentle. And not ever abuse power. And so let me be clear, for any men out there who want to use the Bible's teaching on order in marriage as a justification for ill treatment of their wives, let me say this to you. There is no biblical justification for abuse. Do you see it? It's writ large. There is no biblical justification for abuse. None. Not a bit. The scriptures, if you want to live like that, if you want to be a coward, the scriptures will not stand in your defence when you face God for the abuse of the wife that God has called you to treasure and to love as Christ loved the church. That's not how Christ loved the church, if that's what you're doing. You know what the word is to you? Stop it. Repent. Get help. The final part of this verse, though, is a great encouragement. And it was very radical in the Greco-Roman context. And treat them as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Peter is saying, men, your wives are in every respect your glorious equals, made in the image of God, given the same gracious gift of eternal life with you. So rejoice in them, rejoice in that reality, honour them, because this is good and right. And notice this last bit, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's pretty hard to pray for someone if you're treating them with contempt. But I think there's also a hint of judgment here as well. Why would God hear your prayers with favour when you're abusing your own authority and treating so poorly one who is so precious to him? What on earth makes you think that your prayers are going to go and be well heard and responded to? And that's a fitting conclusion for the passage. A reminder that as God's chosen people, we answer to him and he has called us to live in this world and in every relationship so honourably and so respectfully that our behaviour speaks volumes of his goodness and brings him glory. And so let's sing now that our lives might be an offering, all of our lives, that are pleasing to God.